Well, it's been a great day here to celebrate the lives being changed out in baptism and uh, continuing our series, Desperate People. I wanted to begin today with a, a little bit of a story. I've been reflecting that it was about 10 years ago. I met my wife for the first time, and we started dating, and I was going to seminary, and so I had class on Monday and Tuesday and Thursday nights, and so we needed a night to hang out on the week, and that became Wednesday. But because I was going to seminary and working part-time at a church, I didn't have a ton of cash lying around, and so we needed a cheap date idea. And so I was living in an apartment complex that had a heated pool and a hot tub, and so a lot of times on Wednesday, we ended up just having dinner at my house and then just hanging out down at the pool. And uh, apparently, because uh, I don't pay attention to these things, uh, my wife was picking up that we were having the same conversation over and over and over and over again on a weekly basis. That was a conversation about me losing weight. Now, I wasn't like severely overweight, but my favorite jeans weren't fitting anymore, and I didn't want to buy new ones. And so I just kept bringing up, you know, I need to start working out. I want to start losing weight. I need to start working out. I want to start losing weight. I need to eat healthier. And so finally one night, we're down at the pool. I remember this as vivid as if it was yesterday. I was in this rant that I had week in and week out, and my wife looked at me and she said, do you want to lose weight? Or do you just like the idea of working out? oh man, she shot that one deep, you know? And so, and I still wanted to marry her, you know? And so, you know, she hit the nail on the head that day. You know, I was talking about wanting to change. I was talking about my frustration with what was, but I didn't really want it badly enough to change. Henry Cloud's a psychologist, and he said, when we change, when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of changing. We change when the pain of staying where we are and everything that deals with that and what we know, when that begins to overcome our fear and our pain of, of what the new thing would be. And there's a lot of you, man, that's where you're living today. Maybe that's why you're here. Because you're in a situation that's becoming incredibly painful and difficult you know, if I was Dr. Phil, I'd ask you, how's that working for you? And um, for those of you who, who know that, um, and, and yet you're realizing that that change is going to be difficult too. And, and like me, you're not going to change until you get desperate. Until you're just done with where you've been and what you've known and you're ready to embrace what's new regardless of what that means. And this morning in our series, we're going to look at a man who became incredibly desperate for God to work in his life. The pain of staying where he was was infinitely greater than the pain of changing. And in his life and in this story, we're going to learn one simple truth. And it's this, that desperate people are transformed by Jesus and they share their story with others. You got a bulletin when you walked in, there's a handout on it and a section that says big idea. You can write that concept down that desperate people are transformed by Jesus and they share their story with others. It's one of the reasons I was so excited to have baptism here at Yavapai College today because those people are living pictures of that. Their lives have been transformed and before us today, they shared that story. If you have a copy of the scriptures, open up to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. Mark is about two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through the Bible. Uh, it's one of the accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus. Mark was not an eyewitness, but Peter was, and Mark records Peter's account. And as you notice, these are 20 verses. There's a little bit of a longer passage, more than we typically tackle on a Sunday. 
And so because of that, we're going to kind of work through it chunk by chunk, and I'm going to share a thought or reflection uh, about each of those sections. So beginning in Mark chapter 5, these are the words uh, that Mark records. They, that's Jesus and the disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. I have five insights I want to share with you this morning about desperate people and their transformation stories. And the first insight is that our transformation begins with real pain. Our transformation begins with real pain. This man is in the midst of a very painful daily existence. He's so violent that people have tried to chain him and he breaks the chains apart and he rips the shackles off of his hands and off of his legs. He's been exiled to the mountains because he can't be trusted to live around people anymore. His pain is so great that he's screaming and cutting himself to the point where he bleeds. Some of you in this room, you know that kind of pain. Whether you call it depression, whether you call it mental illness. Some of you in this room or some of you watching online just by playing the numbers have injured yourself in the past as an expression of the pain you feel so deeply inside yourself. And today there's a story in the Bible of someone who knows your pain, who's been there. Maybe you didn't come to church to hear anything else but this, but Jesus is not afraid of your pain. Sometimes when we're in one of those painful, difficult moments and seasons, we're afraid of letting anybody in, even God. And if you're in a dark, painful place today, I've been sent here to tell you that Jesus is not afraid of your pain. You don't need to hide it. He faced the pain of this man and he can face your pain too. And I love the fact that the Bible doesn't sugarcoat our struggles. The Bible doesn't hide the struggles of humanity. If you read the first book in the Bible, it's named Genesis. And it is the book of dysfunctional families. I mean, in Genesis, you will not find one model Brady Bunch, leave it to Beaver family. I mean, they're all modern family dysfunctional. The disciples, they're a train wreck. I mean, Peter's temper is so bad, he would never be an elder at Cornerstone. Paul is so stubborn. Thomas doesn't believe in Jesus. Judas is a compulsive liar. And James and John's egos would not fit in this room. And the Bible doesn't hide or sugarcoat any of it. That's one of the reasons I believe the Bible's true. Because all the heroes in the Bible are a bunch of broken people like us. 
who have real issues and real pain and real struggles. And sometimes there's a myth that floats around church and Christianity that your testimony is, this is how wrecked my life was before Jesus. Then I became a follower of Jesus, and then I skipped down a fairy tale-like path all the way to heaven. And it's a bunch of baloney. Because that's none of our stories. You see, we mark time in human history by B.C. before Christ and A.D. after Christ. And the truth is, our struggles as humans and followers of Jesus aren't all before Christ. Most of them are after Christ. And our testimonies and our stories need to leave space for that. See, I became a follower of Jesus at six Before Jesus was not eating my dinner, not doing my homework, and being disobedient to my parents. I promise you, my struggles are way greater after Christ than before Christ. I'd take those back any day. And the same thing is true for many of you. So our transformation begins in the place where we have real struggle and real pain. And that's why my vision for this church is that we would be a place where people can be real about their pain so they can experience real change. Because sometimes the fakest moment of our week is Sunday morning. People ask you how you're doing, and you say fine, which is an outright lie. And I know why we say it. Do they really want to hear it? Do they really have time? Do they really care? But if we can't be real, guys, we can't experience change. God can't heal our masks. We can't have community with masks. And so if somebody asks you how you're doing today, instead of saying fine, why don't you say, how much time do you have? How real do you want me to be? One of my favorite movies is The Italian Job. In The Italian Job, they say that fine means freaked out, insane, neurotic, and emotional. (laughs) So if somebody says you're fine, ask them which one they are, you know? See, God meets us in the middle of our pain, and that's where transformation starts. And so today, if you're struggling, if today you have pain, guess what? You came to the right place. Here's the second insight from the next section, beginning in verse 6. It says, And when when this man saw Jesus from afar... He ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And here's the creepy part. He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. The second insight is that we can't transform ourselves. We can't transform ourselves. See, this man was not just overwhelmed by deep personal pain. says that he was inhabited by demons. And that wasn't something he was going to be able to solve for himself. He was out in the wilderness trying to figure it out, and it wasn't working. And some of you came here today because you have some of your own demons. Maybe they're literal, maybe they're metaphorical, but you haven't been able to overcome them. And that's why you're here. 
Some of you need to come to the place where you realize that if you were going to figure things out, you would have done so by now. If you were going to fix yourself, you would have done so by now. And that's why you're here. And what you need to do today is invite Jesus into that. To say, hey, I've been trying this my own way for years. It's not working. God, why don't you have your way with it? I've tried my best, and this this is the best I can do. Your best has to be better than this. The other thing we have to do in this section is we have to acknowledge the reality of angels and demons. And some of us are really uncomfortable with that. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. One of the things we don't talk about in church is that what we can't see is also real. And we tend to struggle with this issue in one of two ways. C.S. Lewis frames this up well in his book, Screwtape Letters. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors which our race can fall into about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. There are some of us that are in complete denial that there is a reality that we can't see with forces that are working against us as we pursue God and his mission in the world. And then there are some of us that are obsessed with that reality. And so for those of us who are in denial, the step today is to go, I am going to acknowledge that there are things that I can't see that are affecting what I do see. And there are others of you, when you go to Costco this week, and someone takes your favorite parking spot, do not scream Satan, you know? Like, (laughs) we're going to stop that. Equal and opposite errors. And yet we have to embrace the reality that sometimes things are happening that are greater than we can see. The story continues in verse 11. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged, that's the demons, begged Jesus saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And so Jesus gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and they entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2000. They rushed down the steep bank into the sea and they drowned in the sea and bacon lovers everywhere mourned and wept. I'm one of those bacon lovers, by the way third observation or insight, our transformation can become messy. Our transformation can become messy. I think there's a myth sometimes that coming to follow Jesus and giving your life to him is cut and dry. It's simple, it's neat, but nothing could be further from the truth. And this moment with these pigs is if anything else, and it's an example that we may change, but there are consequences for us and others. See, transformation has consequences. For some of us, we're going to go, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus or I'm going to trust him with this thing, and then other people aren't going to like it. Or, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus. Oh, but I have to give that up? Or, or you're going to follow Jesus and stuff's going to happen down the road that you didn't plan for or expect. 
See, transformation is not always neat, it's not always easy, and it's not always quick. Sometimes we took years to get to a place of brokenness, and it takes years to fully experience freedom. And that's the struggle sometimes. We thought it was going to be neater than it is. We thought it was going to be easier than it is. In John 5, there's this moment where I used to have a huge beef with Jesus because there's a man in John 5, 12 who is paralyzed. And Jesus comes up to him and he says, hey, do you want to be healed? And I'm like, what the heck, Jesus? The guy's paralyzed. Of course he wants to be healed. Duh. Man, Jesus, have some compassion. And then I lived life a little bit. And I realized sometimes we don't want to be healed. We'd rather stay where we are. Yeah, there's pain, but we know the pain. Yeah, there's struggle, but we're safe and comfortable. Some of us, we don't want to be healed because the consequences are too great. It's too messy. It's too difficult. And so we just stay where we are. Let's talk about the pigs for a second. I have this thing about church sometimes where we read the Bible and stuff is there like a giant elephant in the room. We just never talk about it, you know? So now that it's my sermon, I'm going to talk about the pigs. So, so I've spent hours, probably way too many hours, reading books about these pigs. And there are no good answers. I mean, people with a lot more letters after my name with hundreds of pages of books they've written under their belt, and there is not a good, clear, definitive, absolute answer about why these pigs drowned. Which is just frustrating. But it reminds me of something. You see, in this passage, it says that Jesus gave them permission. It doesn't say that Jesus caused them to go there. It says that he gave them permission. And that's one of the biggest struggles in life, right? that God is in control and yet he allows things that we don't understand. God's powerful and yet things still happen and we go, what the heck, God? We shake our fist at God and say, why? We're up late at night with insomnia just battling it out with God, going, God, I don't understand what you are doing. I mean, yesterday we had the dedication of the park for Kayla Mueller. What's the deal with that? She didn't ask for that. See, we're going to have to embrace the places where we don't have easy answers. It's easy when it's the pigs. It's going to be more difficult when it's your life. And so do you have space to allow God to do things you don't understand? to do things that don't make sense to you. I read a book a couple years ago by a woman named Kara Powell called Sticky Faith. It's about how do we pass faith on to the next generation. And here's what Kara said. It's not doubt that is toxic to young people's faith. It's unexpressed doubt. See, I'm not worried when a young person or an older person has doubt. I'm worried when they don't feel like they can actually share that because that's the kind of doubt that will eat your faith alive. 
I don't know any person who's followed Jesus for a long time who hasn't hit questions and doubts. But if this isn't a safe place, if your home with your children isn't a safe place for doubt to be expressed, that faith is like the milk in my refrigerator. It has an expiration date on it. It's going to go bad. So it's okay to have doubt. It's okay to shake your fist at God. It's okay to ask questions that don't have answers. The difficult thing is when you stop doing that and you start giving up. And this story, if nothing else, is a reminder of that. The story continues in verse 17. The herdsmen fled. Well, of course they fled. The pigs are all floating in the water. And they told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And then they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. The fourth observation is that some people will resist our transformation. The untold story about transformation is sometimes it's unpopular and people don't like it. See, you've experienced transformation in your life and you've seen this. Some of you have lost weight and you've changed your diet and there are people that don't like it because you don't eat the same things you used to around them. Some of you have gotten in control of your finances and so you know now longer live on credit and do things with people that you could only afford to do with money you didn't have. And they're frustrated that you can't do those things anymore. Some of you in this room are sober, thank God. And the people who you used to not be sober with are frustrated that they can't not be sober with you anymore. I, I really battled cynicism and bitterness and just a really negative spirit in my life for years. And when I began to get free from that, the people that I used to sit around and have gripe fests with weren't happy because I didn't want to show up for that anymore. A few years later, I had a friend and she wrote me a letter and she said, I'm so mad at you. She said, and I was mad because I felt like I was losing a friend. That's why it's unpopular sometimes is people feel like they're losing us. She said, but years later when I realized the emptiness of bitterness and anger and cynicism, your story of change gave me hope. And so if you have people that are resisting the change that you're experiencing, then give them space. Allow them to be mad and frustrated with you. They may just feel like they're losing you as a friend. And one day the, the anger and sadness and grief of your change may turn into hope because your story will let them know it's possible that you can change. See, I wish if whenever anybody came to Christ or got baptized, the first thing we did was sat them down and said, hey, as excited as you are and as excited as we are, not everybody's excited. Kind of an orientation course hey, the honeymoon's going to be over real quick with certain people. And don't give up in the process. See, sometimes the change we're experiencing convicts other people, and they hate that feeling. 
and so they run from it. I mean, no one was freaking out when this guy was crazy naked in the hills and cutting himself. And they had the pigs. But as soon as the pigs died and he's in his right mind, they're like, get us, get us out of here. They, they weren't happy that he changed because what mattered most to them was lost. I know that none of us have ever dealt with any of that, but just, you know, for the future, file it away. Here's how the story ends. In verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who'd been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. I mean, after all, no one wants him around anymore. Verse 19 says, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. The fifth insight is that our story can birth our calling. Our story can birth our calling. See, this man, instead of being sent away, Jesus sends him back. Instead of letting him off the hook, he pushes him back to the most difficult place, the place where people knew him before. And he says, go back to those people and share your story. See, sometimes the thing we want to run away from that was the place of our bondage and the place of our defeat that we needed to be transformed, that's the very same place Jesus ends up sending us back to because those people need to hear it. John Acuff says this, sometimes God redeems your story by surrounding you with people who need to hear your past so it doesn't become their future. And that's hard It'd be easier to go find new people who didn't know the old you. It'd be easier to go make new friends. But yet, sometimes that place of hurt and pain that we have gotten free from becomes the very mission field that God sends us back to. It's not the easy way out, but since when has Jesus been interested in the easy way out? That's one of the reasons that I gave you a card last week that has your circle on it. And I challenged you, write down the names of the people that God has put in your life that he wants to use you in. Because those people only know your mess, and now God's work is going to show them your message. Those people only know the brokenness of your past, and they're going to see God turn that brokenness into a masterpiece. In the life of this man, he was infamous for being the crazy, naked guy in the hills, and he becomes the man who makes God famous. That's what our God does. He flips the script. He changes the narrative. He turns the story around. He redeems things. We serve a God who wastes nothing, not even your past. And he wants to take it and make it the stage on which he can share his story. That's the hope we have. So in the time that I have left, I want to share some next steps with you to challenge you this week and moving forward. And the first next step is to invite God into your pain so he can transform it. Some of you came today and you're not going to change the way you're living. 
you can't make yourself the person God created you to be on your own. And for some of us, the hard truth is we often have to experience a breakdown before we can experience a breakthrough. And that's not fun. But some of us are just too pride, prideful and stubborn to do it any other way. We got to bottom out. We got to have nowhere else to go. We got to have no other options. We have to be broken. But in that place, whether you choose it or it happens to you, if you invite God in in that place, he can do work that you were never capable of on your own. He can transform and redeem and restore. So you have to begin like this man did. I mean, I can't imagine. If Jesus had security, they would have stopped this guy. I mean, crazy, naked, bleeding guy running at Jesus, you know? And he falls at his feet and says, Jesus, I've tried everything else. I'm desperate for change. It's often when we become desperate that we experience the change we're longing for. Second, claim the story that God is writing in your life. Second step is to claim the story that God is writing in your life. When you walked in, I mentioned that you got a bulletin. In your bulletin, there's a little handout. It's like this. It says, share your story on it. And everybody to pull this out, if you could. Everybody in the room. I created this tool because I believe that you have a story that God is writing in your life that is worth telling. And I believe that as we pray every day at 1215 and even beyond this season of prayer, that God wants to put opportunities in front of us for us to share our story. But the struggle is we're often not prepared. And so if we're not prepared to share our story, the opportunity comes and we just go, oh, I don't feel like I'm ready. I don't know what to say. And the opportunity passes us by. On the back of this sheet are five prompts to help you begin to process through and own your story. Like what are the most significant events in your life which have shaped and impacted you? How did you begin following Jesus? What difference has that made in your life? Why would you encourage someone else to get to know Jesus? See, when we process these questions, it's like preparing in advance and trusting that God will give us opportunity. And I believe that if you'll spend some time this week, some of this may be hard because you don't want to go back into the past. You don't want to relive those things. But there are some people that God is going to use you in the life of to prevent them from experiencing things in the future if you will own your past and get to know your story and share it so it doesn't become their future. So you have to claim the story God's writing with your life so that the third step, you can share your story so God can transform them. See, we, we begin by inviting God into our pain and he transforms us. And then we claim the story, the good and the bad, because we serve a God who wastes nothing. And then we begin to share our story and God uses our story to transform other people. Sometimes we tell ourselves, I got to have all the answers. No, you don't. Nobody does. If you're living a transformed life, tell that story. It's hard to argue with someone who says, this is who I used to be and this is who I am now. Especially with the people who know who you used to be. It's powerful. 
Gary McIntosh, who's a writer about these subjects, says this, the gospel spreads most contagiously, not between strangers, nor by mass evangelism, nor through mass media, but along the lines of kinship and friendship networks of credible Christians, especially new Christians. So if you're in the first two years of following Jesus, you have a network of people that God has supernaturally and strategically put in your life so that they might hear your story and experience the transformation that you have found. That's why every day I'm encouraging you to write down those names and pray for them every day at 1215, that God might use you and your story. One thing I want to say before before this ends, this guy this crazy guy. We don't ever hear from him again in the whole Bible, except one little moment. In Mark chapter 7, verse 31, it says that Jesus goes to the Decapolis, which is a region where non-Jewish people live. It's called Decapolis for deca, decade, means 10. It's an area of 10 cities. According to my research, Jesus had never been to the Decapolis. But in verse 31, he shows up and it says that they brought those who were sick to be healed. How did they know that Jesus was going to heal? Then later, the crowds surge so strong that Jesus has to stop teaching because they're so hungry and have nowhere to get food. And so Jesus performs a miracle that with a few loaves and a few fish, he feeds 4,000 men And if you count women and children with men, multiply it by, I don't know, two, three. We're looking at eight or 10,000 people who eat and experience a miracle. Where did they come from? In verse five, chapter five, verse 20. And the man went away to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. The man did it. One man, not ordained, no degrees, no preparation, just a story to tell. And the same thing could happen through you. God could use you and your story the same way he used this man. There's no other explanation that I can find other than he was transformed and he shared his story. And I would just encourage you today, if you came today, what might happen if you invited God into your life? What might he transform And how could he use that story in ways that go beyond even your greatest imagination? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much that we have this story about a man who really lived, who knew real pain and hurt and brokenness. And God, some of us who came in today, man, we're carrying heavy weights sickness, addiction, financial stress, struggles in our family, prayers that don't seem answered, desires that remain unmet. God, I pray that you would meet us here even in the place of our pain. I pray you would do in our hearts today a work that only you can do. God, I pray that we would not play church. I pray that we wouldn't just go through the motions, 
but that you would build and birth a desperation in our hearts to experience you. That we would invite you in and you would leave us never the same. In your name we pray, amen. There's some of you in this room today and what you need to do today is you need to invite God in. Our prayer partners will be up front and they would love to pray with you about what it might mean to trust God with your life. Some of you in this room, you have somebody on your heart today that needs to hear your story. Some of you, it's your kids. You're a parent. And this needs to be the dinner conversation one night this week. Your kids need to know what God's brought you through. People have known you for a long time, but they don't know your story. Maybe you need to come forward and pray for somebody who who needs to hear your story or the courage to share. We're going to sing a song about how God transforms us. And while we sing, the altar is open. You can come and pray. I encourage you not to leave today without taking a step based upon what God's leading you to do in your heart. So if you want to stand, you can. If you want to sit, this time is yours. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.